Acts chapter 8, 9 to 24, for a sermon I've entitled, Faith, True or False? Well, long as I read. It says, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly practiced magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip's preaching and the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. As he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard uh, that the, uh, Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of Jesus, or the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority as well, so that everyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the, to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are filled with the gall of bitterness and all bondage and iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Back in 1999, a group of Catholic and Lutheran theologians came together to try to resolve the main disagreement that has divided their churches since the time of the Protestant Reformation. You know, there's a lot of beliefs and practices of the Catholic Church that Martin Luther disagreed with at the time. But the most important was the answer to this question. How can a sinner be made acceptable to God? Now, both sides agreed that all people were sinners. And both agreed that a person had to have righteousness to be accepted by God on the day of judgment. But how does one obtain this righteousness? The Catholic Church at the time, and also still today, teaches that God gives grace to a sinner through the sacraments, which helps him to overcome sin in his daily life. And so as a person um, grows in holiness following the teachings of Christ, he achieves a, a certain level of righteousness. If by the time of his death that righteousness is high enough, he goes immediately to heaven. On the other hand, if it's not high enough, he goes to purgatory, where he experiences a limited time punishment from God, which purges away his remaining sin. Now Luther, on the other hand, believed that a person is justified before God, not by becoming righteous, but by being declared righteous. Not on the basis of what the sinner does, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Righteousness is not something you achieve by your works, rather it's a gift you receive by faith. So it's not our righteousness, but Christ that allows us to stand before holy God. Our sins are paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. His righteousness is credited to our account the moment we believe. To put in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man would boast. Or as it says in Titus 3, 5-7, God saved us not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope 
of eternal life. Now, despite the profound and fundamental difference between the way the Catholics and the Protestants understand how a person is made right with God, the committee in 1999 issued what they called the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. It states that the churches now share, quote, a common understanding of our justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. I wonder if you understand or can figure out what's wrong with that statement. I'm going to read it again. They have a common understanding of our justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. That sounds pretty good, except for they leave out one very important word, the word alone. The correct way to state it would be this. We're justified, meaning declared righteous, by God's grace through faith alone in Christ. That's why we sing, nothing in my hands I bring, only to your cross I cling. Salvation is a gift received by faith. As we sing in another song, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. But here's the question. How do we know that we've truly believed? Genuine faith brings salvation, but how do we know that our faith is genuine? I mean, is it possible to have a false faith? Faith? True or false? That's what we want to think about this morning as we look at this portion of God's word. So let's pray and get into the text. Father God, I need to pray for grace and mercy. Because Jesus said on that day there would be many who say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not? And give the list of their accomplishments. And yet he says that he'll turn to them and say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. So help us to see the true nature of faith, Lord, so that we can trust in Jesus with all our hearts. So bless us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you remember where we were last week in the story, uh, as a result of persecution in Jerusalem, the believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And Philip, one of the first deacons of the church, went to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ there. Of course, by God's grace, many responded uh, in faith so as to be saved, with the result that there was great joy, as we saw last week when we were looking at that part of the chapter. Well, starting in verse 5, we see some further ministry results uh, with Philip. And the first thing it involves was a great man. A great man. That's your first point. That's verses 9 to 11. We're introduced to him starting in verse 9. Listen to what it says. Now there was a man named Simon who was formerly practiced magic in the city and astonishing people in Samaria claiming to be something great. And they were all from the smallest to the greatest were giving attention to him saying this man is what's called the great power of God. And they were giving attention uh, uh, because he for a long time had astonished them with his magic arts. Now just out of curiosity I looked up on Wikipedia to see how many people in history are listed with the title great. Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, they were both Russian rulers, Abbas the Great of Persia, Alexander the Great of Macedonia. Do you know by the age of 32 he had conquered much of the known world? Some guys at age 32 are still living in their parents' basement playing video games. Well, they listed over 100 people from history who had that appellation of being great given to them. The last one on the list was under why it was you, the great. Why you? He was a Chinese military leader. I'll bet when he walked around, people were like, you the greatest. Thanks, Dina. Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player, was simply known as the great one. Now, Simon was known as the great one in his day. He, he thought he was great, and other people thought he was great. He was like a modern rock star and he evidently had a lot of groupies. It says for um, all the smallest and the greatest were giving attention to him, saying this man is what's called the great power of God. Can you think of any famous magicians? When I was a kid, there was a, a guy who had his own program. His name was Doug Henning. 
uh, was a magician. I always thought he looked like a bunny rabbit. If you, if you Google a picture of him, you're going to like, he does. He does. Well, it's interesting. Uh, there's another well-known uh, magician, David Copperfield. He was the one who made the Statue of Liberty disappear back in 1983. I don't think that's all that impressive. Back in 2020, Black Lives Matter made 160 statues disappear of historical figures like Lincoln and Jefferson and Robert E. Lee. They were all removed because they were racists. Strangely enough, they took down one of Frederick Douglass, a former slave who fought against slavery. Evidently, he was a racist too. Well, the most famous of all the magicians was Harry Houdini. But actually, Houdini saw himself as an escape artist and an illusionist. As a matter of fact, he um, spent a fair amount of time trying to debunk those who claimed to do real magic. But in the 1800s and early 1900s, there was a movement in the United States called spiritualism. I don't know if you've heard of that. People became fascinated with the occult, and so they would get together and have seances where they could communicate with the world beyond. One of the most famous practitioners of these seances was a Scotsman named Daniel Douglas Hume. Uh, in his seances, people would hear rappings. They would see glowing hands on the wall. He would levitate up off of his chair. It was reported that he floated out one window and came back in the other one. Uh, an accordion would play that was underneath the table when everyone's hands were up on top. A lot of famous people took part in these uh, seances. Robert Browning and his wife, Elizabeth, poets. Author Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes series. Matter of fact, him and Harry Houdini were good friends until Houdini started to debunk these because he was a firm believer in these things. Now, here's a question, though. Was Simon a fraud? Simply an illusionist who impressed people with a great bag of tricks? Or was he involved in actual black magic? Witchcraft. Do you remember what happened after Moses threw down his rod before Pharaoh and it turned into a snake? Pharaoh's magicians, Janus and Jambres, did the same thing. Where did they get that power? Jesus told us that in the end times, false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as if possible to deceive even the elect. Speaking of the end times antichrist, the one that Paul calls the lawless one, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-10, he says this, The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay by the breath of his mouth when, uh, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, listen to this, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness, so are that those who perish, because they did not receive a love of the truth, so as to be saved. Listen carefully, if you don't embrace the truth when it comes to you, you get lies. If you don't like the light, you'll get darkness. Well, in Simon's case, we don't know whether it was smoke and mirrors or whether it was satanically inspired, though I would guess it was probably the latter. One way or another, he was making a name for himself and wowing the people, but just in a few moments, we're going to find it's going to be his turn to be impressed. That brings us to the next thing we see after a great man, which is a great harvest, and this is 12 to 13. <coughs> great harvest. Uh, Jesus, after he, uh, when he was speaking to the woman at the well, you remember, she went back to the town. And she said to the people there, Come see the man who told me everything I ever, have ever done. This is not the Christ, is it? And it says they went out from the city and they were all coming to him. You know, by the way, whenever a person has a life-changing encounter with Jesus, they want other people to come and see. And the Samaritans were walking into the field towards Jesus. Jesus looked at his disciples as he looked out at them and said, Do not say yet four months and then it's the harvest. 
Behold, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So then he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. John 4, 35 to 37. Now after Philip preached the gospel in Samaria, there was another great harvest that was brought in. Look what it says in verse 12. But when they believed Philip's preaching, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And if you think that's impressive, look at the next verse. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as, and as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now, Simon the sorcerer believed? Wow, what a shiny trophy of God's grace. At least that's probably what Philip and the other Jewish believers thought. You know, Simon was a big name, influential mover and shaker. But have you ever noticed when some celebrity professes faith in Christ, immediately they want to put him on the Christian talk shows to be interviewed? I saw one of those clickbait articles. Celebrities you didn't know were Christians. Tom Hanks, he was raised Catholic and Mormon. But in his teen years, he called himself a Bible-toting evangelical. Now he and his wife are Greek Orthodox. Jane Fonda, she claims to be a follower of Christ, but recently she called for the murder of pro-life people. Later she said she was joking. I'm a Christian. I don't joke about murdering people. The singer Beyonce, she claims to belong to Jesus, but her music videos and the way she dresses might make you wonder. She says that she celebrates her body without compromising her Christian faith. Now claims of conversions of big celebrities often turn into big disappointments. Of course, this is going to be the case with Simon by the end of the story as well. So we have a great man, a great harvest. Next, we see a great moment, a great moment. That's verses 14 to 17. Now, I came across a website article uh, entitled, Great Moments in Radio History. Now, some of them they listed were the crash and burning of the airship, the Hindenburg. Oh, the humanity of it. Or the announcement of the attack on Pearl Harbor, a day that'll live in infamy. Or Orson Welles. War in the World Halloween broadcast where people thought we were being invaded by Martians. Can you believe people thinking there's aliens coming from other planets? Who would? That's only people in the olden times who believe that, right? Well, this was a great moment in church history because this is the first time the church went beyond ethnic barriers to reach non-Jews, in this case, Samaritans. And the response was so stunning that the apostles sent a, a delegation down there to check it out. Look at what it says in verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began uh, laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting, because at Pentecost, you remember, the Holy Spirit came upon the believers— and as a result, they started to preach the gospel. When the people heard, they believed the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then they were baptized. But here, the order seems to be heading in a different direction. Because here, they, were, they heard the message, they were baptized, but it says the Holy Spirit had not yet been received yet. Now, isn't it true, though, that unless the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we don't believe? It's he who changes the heart, to take out a heart of stone to give us a heart of flesh. It says of Lydia that when Paul preached, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. 
That's what happens. We have to be regenerated, given a new heart, and then we believe. Regeneration precedes faith. Well, then why then did God do it out of order? Well, I think the commentators are right that suggest that God was doing this so that both Jews and Samaritans would have a proper understanding of God's plan in order and salvation. I mean, what would have happened if the Spirit would have come onto the Samaritans apart from the apostles laying hands on them? Well, if the apostles hadn't witnessed the Holy Spirit coming upon the Samaritans, it's possible that a lot of Jesus' Jewish followers would have had suspicions that they had ever been really converted. I mean, these are Samaritan, half-breed Israelites with defective theology in many ways. The Jewish believers had to understand that the Samaritans didn't have to become Jews to be followers of Jesus. And by the way, later on, they really struggled with the idea that a Gentile could become part of the people of God without first converting to Judaism. On the other hand, the Samaritans needed to understand that their religion was defective in a number of places. Jesus told that Samaritan woman at the well, you, meaning you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But now, the continuity and unity of Christ's followers in the case of being Jews and and Samaritans was established and evidenced by the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans as the Jewish apostles laid their hands upon them. So you got a great man, a great harvest, great moment. The next thing you see, though, is a great mistake. A great mistake. And this is 18 to 24. The mistake was made by Simon. Look what it says in verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered money, saying, Give me this authority as well, so that everyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now Simon was greatly mistaken on a couple things. First of all, in the nature of the Holy Spirit. In the Star Wars series, occasionally when people meet or greet or bid people goodbye, they say, May the Force be with you. Well, the Force is an impersonal presence, a power like electricity. The Holy Spirit has power because he's Almighty God, but he's personal. He's the third person of the triune God. He's the one who causes a person to come alive spiritually so that the sinner responds to the gospel message when they hear. He not only changes our hearts so that we believe, but he also enters into the bodies of believers to dwell in them. That's why the Bible tells us that Christians are the temple of the living God. Now, like a magician might spend money to buy a felt hat, a couple of doves, some flash powder, and a magic wand, Simon wanted to buy a couple pounds of the Holy Spirit so he could add to his bag of tricks. That's the second problem, though, was he thought that salvation was something that could be bought. In the Middle Ages, there arose a, process, or a, a practice known as simony. It comes from this story, where the church would sell off offices like of a bishop or an archbishop or a cardinal. So if you were a wealthy landowner, you might leave your estate to your oldest son, but then you would purchase a bishopric for your younger son, and then he would live off the offerings that were given for the rest of his life. So the clergy, you had the clergy running the church, not because they were men of God who knew the Bible and taught it to the people, but because they had wealthy fathers who knew how to bribe church officials. I mean, think of the megachurches today. A lot of that's still big business, isn't it? Well, most people today don't think they can buy their way into church leadership, but there's still a whole lot of people who think they can buy a ticket to heaven. I want you to think about it, though. How many people are there that go to church who in their heart of hearts are convinced that by doing good deeds, being religious, or dropping some money in the collection plate, that means they're going to heaven? Simon was making a simple business proposition. Here's $10,000 for two pounds of the Holy Spirit. But Peter not only turned him down the deal, he also denounced Simon in the process. Listen to what he says in verse 20. But Peter said to him, 
May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of your wickedness and pray that the Lord, to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Now, hold it. Didn't we read earlier that even Simon himself believed? I mean, is, is he just off to a rocky start in his new Christian faith? I don't think so. Peter said, you have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. He says, for I see that, in the gall of, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. In other words, he's still in his sins. Now, it sounds to me like his faith was a false faith, not a true one. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 8. Because I want to show you another passage where this idea of false faith shows up. John chapter 8, and I want you to go to verse 31. John's the book right before Acts, the one we're in. This is Jesus, and he's talking to some people who are professed followers of his. Look what it says, starting in verse 31. So Jesus was saying, catch these next words, to those who believed in him. Okay, so that's the group he's talking to, to people who profess faith in Jesus, and John says they believed in him. He said this, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He got offended by this. The answer said, We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that you'll make us free? Now, by the way, that in itself is just silly, because they had been enslaved in Egypt, they had been enslaved in Assyria, they had been enslaved in Babylon, and they were dominated by the Romans at the time. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin, meaning continues in sin, is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Now I know that you're Abraham's descendants, and yet you seek to kill me, because my word has found no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you've heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to him, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come of my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my words. You're of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of liars. But because I speak to you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you don't hear them, because you're not of God. And by the time you get to the end of this chapter, they're picking up stones. They want to kill Jesus. Now, I want you to think about it. Listen carefully. These were people we're told believed. There's a kind of faith where a person hears the message of Jesus and agrees with it intellectually, but never has a genuine heart change so as to be truly saved. And we have churches filled with people who think that God is their father and Christ is their savior when in fact the devil is their father and Christ is their enemy. And when the truth of God comes to them, even if on the outside they're nodding yes, yes, in their heart of hearts they're still saying no, no, 
Because Jesus said, he who's of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you don't hear him because you're not of God. Now, some believed, or Simon believed in some sense, but he showed that his faith was false because he was not of God. And despite his profession and the fact that he already baptized him, he didn't belong to Christ. Of course, that begs the question, is your faith true or false? Has it brought desire-changing, life-transforming results so that you not only want to live for Christ, but that you actually do live for Christ? If so, your faith is genuine, saving faith. If not, it's fool's gold. It may glitter, but on Judgment Day, you're going to find out that it's worthless. This is not something that you should be uncertain about. Heaven and hell are at stake. How did Simon respond to Peter's denunciation? He says in verse 24. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you said may happen to me. Now notice he doesn't pray himself. He wants somebody else to pray for him. So the text ends there, but I have one more point. Here's the last great. Write down the words, a great enemy. A great enemy. Did Simon actually repent here? No, I don't think so. This is the last time Simon the Magician is mentioned in the Bible, but it's not the last time he shows up in the history of the church. We learn from the writings of the church fathers, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, that after being cast out by the apostles, Simon not only went back to his magic, but he started the movement known as Gnosticism, a Christian heresy which became the greatest challenge to the church in the first two centuries. You know, some of the greatest enemies of the gospel are people who at one time embraced the faith. Francis Schaeffer was an apologist, an evangelist, great Christian thinker. His son, Frankie, worked with him for years. I think today Frankie considers himself a Christian atheist. He opposes the faith that he once professed. Or how about Abraham Piper, John Piper's son? He got away from the Lord, but he repented, at least they thought. They brought him back into membership in the church. Today you can go on TikTok or YouTube and see him give all kinds of videos about Christianity, mocking it, and the Bible, and all that kind of stuff, and he swears like a sailor. Speaking of such people, John put it this way, they went up from us because they are not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. 1 John 2.19 So this morning, you're sitting here today with Christ's followers. You are with us, but are you really of us? Some of you know you're not with us or of us. What should you do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For others, perhaps this truth is just dawning on you. I don't think I really know the Lord. What should you do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For still others, your faith is true not false, what should you do? Keep believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There's so much at stake. The meaning of the gospel, the nature of saving faith, and your eternal destiny. We've got to get this right. Get it right. Let's pray. Our Father in God, Simon perished. There's no evidence that he ever repented of his sins. But that just tells us 
that we can have moving and emotional experiences, raise our hand at camp, be baptized as a child, confirmed, all these other religious things without our heart ever changing because we've never really trusted in Christ. We're still trusting in what we are doing in our religious activities. Father, I pray for each one here that uh, they would look at their own hearts to see, have I really embraced Jesus? Is he the joy of my heart? Do I enjoy the things of God? Is he my treasure? Because if he's not, we're not going to heaven. Because those who enter the kingdom are those who find a treasure in a field and sell everything to get it. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us, and we pray that we would be moved by it to repent of our sins and to trust you for all things. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen.